Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to this very special edition of Atlanta Business Radio. It is that time of the month when we have Women in Technology, our special edition. Now, Sandy Welfare, who typically joins us, she's on Walkabout, so we have the distinct pleasure of having in the studio with us Director of Events for Women in Technology, Miss Christina Beyer. How are you, Sunshine? Hello, I'm good. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. We're very excited about the upcoming event um, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is some of our crew, including myself, we're going to be out there at SunTrust Park broadcasting live, covering the event, interviewing some of the the speakers and the sponsors and, and attendees. So we're excited from that standpoint. But get us caught up on activities at WIT and uh, lay it on us about this event. Right, absolutely. Well, first off, we are actually going to be over at the Coca-Cola Roxy. So it is, of course, part of SunTrust Park, but really excited about that awesome new venue. So June 15th at Coca-Cola Roxy. We are thrilled about it. Um, We, of course, have Miss Catherine Finney, who is here with us, who is going to be our wonderful keynote speaker. So awesome to have her here. Catherine is the founder, managing director of Digital Undivided. So we are really, really honored to have her uh, be a part of this awesome event. Well, let's get her involved in this conversation. Good morning, Miss Catherine. How are you? Good morning to you. And it's not Miss Catherine, it's just Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are delighted to have you. Uh, Exciting to have you uh, be the keynote speaker for this event. What propelled you to get involved with women in technology and make the commitment to, to uh, to do this talk? Well, the work that women in technology is doing in the Atlanta area is quite impressive. Um, And as a woman in technology and sort of dedicating my life to getting more women into technology, it just made sense for me to to be there and to speak and have the wonderful opportunity to celebrate with them um, all their wonderful work. So tell us a little bit about Digital Undivided Mission, Purpose. What, What are you out there doing for folks? Well, Digital Undivided, our focus is really helping Black and Latina women own their work using innovation and technology as tools. Uh, we run a incubator accelerator program in downtown Atlanta in the Hurt Building, the Matlock Building, as people that tell me. That is such a cool <laughs> building. Just it the is. architecture of that building rocks. It is, and there's always a movie being filmed there. So it's kind of cool when we have <laughs> visitors come in and it's like, you know, Mark Consuelo in the lobby. It makes us seem like we're really cool. <laughs> Um, but we have a it's called the Big Innovation Center in the Hurt Building, and we run an accelerator incubator program. And we just finished our application process. We had over a twenty five percent increase for our incubator program this year, and we just had our start program, which is sort of where all the finalists for the incubator come together, and we do a weekend of lean startup and sort of idea creation and ideation, and it's a really a fun fun time. Well, it must be incredibly rewarding work. I know here in the studio from time to time, uh, with and through organizations like yours often, but sometimes just individually, we will have 
startups coming through the studio, talking about their story, sometimes uh, uh, pitching their story. And I feel 10 years younger every time they, <laughs> every time they come through. But, but day in, day out, you, I mean, you are really doing a lot of work with these folks, aren't you? Yeah, and it's amazing the ideas, the passion, the drive that's out there. It's just so much fun. I, every day I get to hear something new. Um, I think very few people have that opportunity in their jobs to be really in the center of innovation and working with communities that maybe priorly didn't have a path towards really operationalizing their innovation. So helping communities, particularly communities that I'm a part of, um, to have that ability to do that is is really rewarding. So is that the the primary gap that the, the void that, that you guys are filling is this, I like this word operationalizing the the innovation. So is that what are the nuts and bolts of that? Is there is there mentoring? Is there methodology? Education? Get, walk us through kind of what that looks like, if you would. Yeah. So primarily what we do in the incubator program is a 26-week program, and we take people through sort of three key components of getting your idea from out of your head into paper into an actual company. We like to think of ourselves as sort of the G to B P solution. We're not an A to Z solution, meaning um, we're not necessarily the ones that are going to help you come up with the idea, and we're not the ones that are necessarily going to give you the half a million dollars, million dollars down the road. We'll give you maybe a little bit, but not that much. But we help you sort of in that middle part. And so the first step of the process, our module one, is all about customer development. It's about finding out who your customer is, uh, who's going to purchase or buy your service or product, um, and taking that and operationalizing it into what we call an MVP or minimal viable product. What is the smallest, uh, least intensive um, framework example of that idea that you can put out into the market and get feedback on. Um, And we do that so that people don't spend a ton of money building something that no one wants, which I think a lot of startups, I'm sure you've met with a lot of startups who spend a lot of money initially and then find out nobody wants to actually use their product. Right. And so the second part in module two is all about the product development. So before you even build it, uh, we want you to focus on finding out if someone's going to buy it. Oh, no, they're right. 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 <laughs> right? Just, do people actually want what you right. are going to do? Um, and then once you find out that, yes, people want it, um, then you build it. And building it is not a one thing you build and then you're done. It's a constant process because you're continuously getting feedback from customers. That's all sort of the center of the lean startup process is that you're constantly getting feedback. And then after your product is built, then we focus on the company aspects of it, trademarking, making sure that you're set legally as a corporate corporation, all those sort of things. So, and and I know in most sort of small business entrepreneurship training, you focus on that first, right? You get, you, you register as an LLC or a C Corp or S Corp, what have you, and you do your trademarking and then you work on the idea. Well, in innovation and tech, things are moving so fast. And you don't even know if your idea is something that people want. It doesn't make any sense investing money in operationalizing from a corporate sort of structure standpoint, <clears throat> something that's not going to even really be a business. So Amen. We, yeah. I, I could not agree with you more. We do see that a lot. And I, I've wondered from time to time if one of the reasons that new startups, people new to entrepreneurship, whether they're younger or old, 
if they don't do some of that because they're getting some kind of like emotional compensation because mm-hmm. they feel like they're doing something in their business. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought of that because that is immediate sort of feedback, right? Right. There's nothing more exciting than registering your company and then getting that sheet back from the Secretary of State saying that your company is real. That is emotionally very gratifying, but that doesn't make a business. (laughs) It doesn't pay the rent, does it? It doesn't pay the rent. (laughs) It's a great piece of paper, but it doesn't pay the rent. And so we focus on the rent paying first and then worrying about the company, then worrying about the trademark. One of the things that is so interesting to me, um, the number of people who come to me and say, hey, Catherine, I have an idea and I've already got trademarked and I spent $10,000 doing it. And I said, well, how do you know if anyone wants to use it? You just trademark something that someone may not want to use and you just spent 10 k to do so. And so how do you know? How do you, how do you know? And so um, it's, but it is, there, there is that emotional part. I, I do agree with that. So funding financial support for your efforts, is it uh, is this a nonprofit mm-hmm. kind of outfit? And is there a way for businesses and family offices and those kind of uh, entities to, to contribute in some way? Yeah. Well, the program itself is a nonprofit. So our okay. incubator is a nonprofit. But what it's attached to is the Harriet Fund, which is a fund that's ran by myself and Gayla Jennings O'Byrne, who is a former investment banker from J.P. Morgan. And the Harriet Fund invests in companies led by Black and Latina women. We're an early stage impact seed investment. And um, through that, that's a really great way for family offices to get involved if they want to sort of okay. dip their toe in this space. Um, and we do offer funding through that. So last year, through our Harriet Angels, which is a subsection of the Harriet Fund, Gayla and I invested in six companies that came through our incubator program. Um, there were small investments of 20K, but they were enough to get people started, kind of right. kickstart things a little bit. Um, we'll also be doing similar investments this year. And we'll also be doing some growth level investments of people who have been involved with the digital invited family in the past who have reached a certain level where they're ready for the more growth capital. And that's going to be a larger investment amount. All right. So the target group that we're really trying to to serve here are African-American, Latino, female mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And I'll ask, I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption, so yeah. maybe I should frame it as a, as a question. But I, I know in the case of WIT, Women in Technology, there's some, you know, middle-aged white guys like mm-hmm. myself who have, you know, done pretty well. And we need and want to support this. So there's, there's, there's a path, yes, for, I mean, oh, yeah. I don't have to be a Latino or African-American mm-hmm. woman to, to help out. No, no. And, you know, I'm <laughs> so glad that you asked that question. There's something about being yourself and being very clear about who you are um, that also inspires other people. And so I tell mm-hmm. this story. We had a... Um, We've had a number of, you know, middle-aged white guys who are friends, um, particularly from from Silicon Valley, New York, and and other places come to visit us and to speak. We have a Lunch and Learn series. Um, And so we had one guy, and I don't want to totally put him on blast, who's this amazing (laughs) VC, runs a very well-known firm, come and, you know, you come into our space and it's a big picture of Shirley Chisholm and we have Oprah wallpaper and there's a sign, a big, very big lighted sign that says big. And he came in and he was like, oh my God, I don't want to leave. This is so cool. Like I've never, I've been to 
a number of different startup spaces. Uh, This person sits on the board of Airbnb and other companies. And he's like, I've never came into a space in tech that was like this. This is amazing. This is giving me ideas. This is giving me inspiration. And so what we found was by being ourselves and presenting ourselves, but not being exclusionary. Being yourself doesn't mean that you exclude other people mm-hmm. in any way, shape, Excellent or form. Point. Yes. Um, being yourself actually, I think, is rather inclusive. Um, and <clears throat> so we found that by creating this space that people came in and were like, oh my God, this is great. Regardless of gender or race or class or geographic location, they were just excited to be there. It's kind of cool. We're playing, you know, old school R&B and hip hop in our space. Like you don't really get to hear that a lot. And, you know, um, we always have food. (laughs) We always have food. We always are, you know, and it's just a very welcoming environment. And we found that people feel welcome there too. And they're inspired as well. Well, you had me at food, but but, <laughs> let, but let's talk about ROI and let's be very candid. I mean, it's one of the reasons that middle-aged white guys and anybody else, African-American women who have succeeded or whoever wants to, to, to prop incubators up and help them, part of it is, you know, we're just, we're nice folks and it feels good to, to mm-hmm. do that. But there's also genuine, real bottom line ROI in investing in the business community and investing in these specific efforts, it comes back and generates actual real ROI, or at least it does in our world. For for yeah. example, there is a tremendous amount to be gained in our organization, the Business Radio X Network, as we continue to expand the network, it would be tremendously valuable for us to get to know with, work with, and have professionals who have credibility in those distinct um, communities Mm -hmm. and to have African-American, Latino uh, folks running studios Mm -hmm. and building those relationships and and the different markets. Um, I don't know if if you could speak to that a little bit, but but that's been our experience is, yeah, it feels good and you get that emotional compensation and all that. Then you get to, you know, when you go to the club, you get to tell your buddy that you're helping out an incubator or whatever. But there, I mean, there's a business case for for us to support stuff like this, right? No, totally. Uh, since 2007, 80% of all women-led small businesses have been started by Black and, and Latina women. 80%. Wow. Right? So if you're doing anything, whether you're in banking, whether you're in radio, that's targeting small businesses. If you are not accessing those populations, then you're missing out on a large chunk You're not meeting your market. You're You're not meeting your market. You're not meeting your market. That's a business reason. Um, We can also go into the the amount of this purchasing power, particularly of Black women, is quite significant. Um, Influencer networks. I mean, the influence of, you know, we all talk about Black Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that, but it's documented. The influence to be able to move people, to be able to move your brand is quite significant. So if you're not reaching out and tapping those markets, you are missing out on a lot of opportunity. You're you're basically leaving money on the table. And fortunately, we're at a point now where you have organizations that can assist you with that. You have paths forward. Um, 
And I'm I'm really excited about not only the work that we're doing at Digital Divided, but with what WIT is doing and other organizations that are giving people who want an entrance into these markets, who really sincerely want to learn how to either work with innovative companies like we do or to work with generally women like WIT, how to do it. There is a path. But the thing that I always say is that that doesn't come for free. And I think that's something that needs to be said because as a, as a woman, as a person of color, we're often asked to give that information, our, our intellectual capital, for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, there's a, and there's a value on that, right? Oh, absolutely. A value on that. And so the thing that I always say when I talk with corporations is make sure that you understand the value of, of what these markets are bringing and that you are willing to pay for it. Um, like you would for anything else, any other market. You you pay to do recruitment on, on college campuses, right? Because you feel that that's where you can get your talent. The same yeah. sort of idea goes for accessing these markets too. All right. And and there's there's different levels of participation and different ways to contribute. I would think I don't have to head to the Hurt Building with a briefcase with a million dollars in it, right? I mean, a small company like us, and we have to watch yeah. our margins, but we still want to do that for all the, the reasons that we just described. But the the financial investment can be you know re- fairly modest, right? To well, to yeah, help. yeah. I think it has to. I think particularly if you're a business, it should be tied like any other business decision. It should be tied to how it generates revenue for you or how mm-hmm. it helps you meet a certain business objective. Um, and so I, I think I don't want to speak for my entire community that I represent. Yeah, go ahead. But I, I, I think most of most of us are looking for just compensation for the value that we bring. And that value can be set by market, right? Mm-hmm. But we're not asking for anything more than that, but we're asking for that, though. And I think that's something to be really clear. But there's other ways um, that you can help as well. Like, for example, even having me on this radio. Right. right? I mean, so it's, helping, it's, right? it's helping. It's yeah. definitely helping. So there's other ways in which you can help sort of spread the message and have people on and talk about new and sort of interesting markets and opportunities and the things that they're doing. Particularly in Atlanta, there's a lot of really interesting things happening um, in the innovation economy here. In the space, you have companies like Microsoft that is just putting like a flag um, here in Atlanta saying, hey, Atlanta's sort of hot. Uh, When you leave Atlanta, and I travel a lot outside of Atlanta, you hear people talking about what's happening, particularly around black, black tech. And you're hearing a lot in the Valley. So you have people coming in from the Valley trying to figure out what's going on in Atlanta because Atlanta is somehow figuring out, not quite there, but we're figuring out how to get, create a diverse tech community. And that's something that New York and Silicon Valley has not quite figured out. No, go ahead. No, no. And and there's a lot of interest, a lot of interest from some very big name players too. Wow, that's very encouraging. Now, speaking of intellectual capital, you guys have a whole, you have a research arm. You guys are, mm-hmm. are out there conducting research and you've got a recent study that you've you've published some results or you're about to publish some results? Yeah, we have a long-term project called Project Diane. Mm-hmm. It's our data initiative looking at women of color and entrepreneurship and tech. And we started it because in 2014, we were looking at expanding our programming and I'm an epidemiologist by training, which is sort of the study of 
diseases and how they impact populations. So I love data. I haven't met an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet that I did not love. I love spreadsheets. My staff could tell you I'm like a spreadsheet like queen. Um, and so we went to go look for this data to in order to base our programs. Everything we do is data-driven. And we found that there was no data. And at that time, this was at the end of 2014, there was very little data on women in tech in general, let alone women of color. And so we were like, oh my God, we have to do something. We kind of panicked a little bit because we're like, we have no data. And I was talking to a mentor and, and he said to me, who happens to be a middle-aged white guy <laughs> <BC. laughs> um, And he said, you know, didn't you like go to Yale and like, don't you have this like degree and aren't you like smart and stuff? It's like, <laughs> go be smart. And I don't know why I didn't think of that, but it like clicked. And he was like, go be smart. You, you know how to do this. You ran research, large-scale research projects. Go and do the work. And that's what we did. And that was Project Diane. And it's a continuous project where we're looking at and collecting data on what's going on with, we started off with Black women because that was just an easier market for us to capture, but we've expanded it, of women of color in tech, in the startup world. And the numbers we found um, were quite sad. I can't put any other word <laughs> than sad and a little bit scary. Um, at the end of 2016, there was only approximately 11 Black women who had raised more than a million dollars in outside VC funding. Wow, that is wow. low. I, that wow. surprises me. That's vi- That was very, yeah. very surprising for us. Um, why that is of concern is that the average, mostly male, mostly white, failed startup raises $1.3 So what we were finding was that even the most talented Black woman-led startup was not raising as much as the least talented wow. white men. Wow. <laughs> like, like, you know, we're not talking about the the Ubers, the Airbnb. We're not talking about the the, the top dudes, right? We're right. talking about the ones who are just like, <laughs> eh. And that was scary. We found that um, 0.2% of all venture funding had went to Black women. Black women are about eight, 7, 8% of the U.S. population. So it was, these numbers were just really striking. We were, we also found that the top schools, and this was really interesting, you know, a lot of VCs tap certain schools. That's sort of their pipeline in terms Mm -hmm. of what companies are going to invest in. But what we found was that the top schools that produce Black women-led startups were not the same schools that produce white mostly white male-led startups. They weren't even the top schools that produced mostly women-led startups, right? So if you were a VC who was interested in accessing different markets or different founder profile, and all you went to was Stanford or all you went to Carnegie Mellon or all you went to was Georgia Tech, you, you would be missing out. You wouldn't find those diverse founders. And if you wanted to find the diverse founders, you would have to go to places like Harvard, which wasn't in the top four for white males, but is in the top for black women. Interesting. Stanford, this was what we found even more interesting. Stanford was tied with Spelman for the number of black women-led startups produced. How about that? Yeah. All right. So root cause, uh, again, I'm going to make another jump. This is not necessarily a product of just blatant 
prejudice. It, it's more complicated than that, right? It's it, it's it's it's, it's pattern. It's it's yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you tell me what you think it is because yeah. it, it just strikes me that it wouldn't be that simple. Like I'm not going to invest money in African Americans or Latinos. It's not that simple, is it? Well, I don't think it's that conscious. I wouldn't say it's that simple. I don't okay. think it's, I don't right. think it's okay. conscious. I think, and this is something we talk a lot about at Digital Divided, even within our team. Um, in order to believe in even what we do at Digital Divided, you have to believe in me. And you have to believe that someone like me, Catherine Finney, can lead an organization and can solve a problem. Right. At the fundamental, right? If you don't believe someone like me can do that, you are not going to be able to see it. It doesn't matter how successful I may be. It doesn't matter how great my outcomes may be, whatever I produce. You're just, you're going to have this sort of cognitive disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in tech, that there is a cognitive disconnect with believing whether or not fundamentally certain groups of people can do the work. Mm -hmm. Uh. And, and, and that's really what it is. And until we address that, we're still going to have these problems. So, um, I mean, there's numerous stories we hear from community members and even companies that I've invested in personally where they'll go into a meeting and 45 minutes of the hour meeting, because you only get an hour. You don't get to come back. You don't get an hour and five minutes. Mm-hmm. You get an hour. Mm-hmm. And 45 minutes of that meeting is talking and convincing the people in the room why you're in the room. Not about your company, not about your growth metrics, not about what you've done, but specifically how someone like you could be in that room. And therefore, you're already at a disadvantage, right? Because 45 minutes of that one hour you get, instead of spending 45 minutes talking about your company, you're talking about trying to justify why you're even in the room. And so that's the root problem. And until we deal with that and we have real discussions about that, we're still going to have these challenges. And maybe that is a big part of the answer is just to bring it out in the open, have a candid conversation uh, about it, because I don't think we can afford as a, as, a, as a company, as a country, as a culture to just let time take care of it. Yep. Yeah. Right. So we got to have this conversation, call it what it is and, and, and talk it through. So it's this this unconscious, uh, I was going to say belief, I guess misbelief that you could have some misbeliefs yeah. that maybe you're not even aware of. And maybe even maybe I, you know, the most enlightened guy on the planet, right? <laughs> maybe I unconsciously react differently mm-hmm. to the young white guy with the tailored coat that comes in here and wants to talk to me about a business idea and the incredibly effusive, wonderful personality lady that comes in with a beautiful scarf tied up on her. Right? I mean, Catherine has a beautiful scarf tied up over her head. That's not how most of the folks look when I sit in a boardroom and I'm talking about investing money, right? right. You're right. And maybe that's just, maybe, I don't think consciously I'm like, man, I'd never work with her, but maybe there's this unconscious. And you're right. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I've had a number of successful companies, and I say to people, I've earned the right to dress whatever way I want to you dress. You go. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I have, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what I found was, again, about me being me, right? And coming in and people making certain assumptions. Because mm-hmm. what I found, particularly as a Black woman, it doesn't matter how I dress, people are going to have certain assumptions of me. Now, maybe the assumptions may be a little bit less 
a little, the degree may go here or there a little bit, but they're going to have that assumption. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to have that in some assumption, I'm going to just go ahead and be myself Um, because I can't do anything about you. (laughs) I can't do anything about that. Right. Right. Um, But I do agree. I think it's, we have to have real conversations and they're uncomfortable conversations. They're very uncomfortable conversations, but we have to have them because that's the only way we're going to move forward. And we have to address what is it even inside of us that makes us react a certain way to certain people. Um, It's really interesting to see the change, particularly in the tech world, around hidden figures. Um, Uh, Prior to hidden figures, it was a great movie, right? Prior to hidden figures, there was this belief um, that I I think that Black women, Black people were not involved in tech. Um, My father got involved in tech in the early 80s, worked for digital equipment, then was an engineer at Microsoft. And then when he passed away, he was an executive at EMC. So I grew up in sort of this tech space and knew a lot of the people. Um, I know Margaret, who wrote the book, Hidden Figures. Oh, wow. She grew up with these women. These were women she knew, Mm -hmm. like... So for us, for people to think that we're not involved was just like mind-boggling because we knew people had been involved for a long time. When that movie came out and what that movie has done is it's shown people is that we have been here. We've been here for a long time. Women have been here. Mm-hmm. Women of color have been here from the beginning of the tech industry. It's just that you couldn't see us. We were not pushed forward. We didn't have movies about us. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, within 10 years of founding Facebook, he had a movie about him, right? right. <laughs> like, um, So you didn't see us. We were not known, but that didn't mean that we didn't exist. And I think that that's what Hidden Figures has done. And I'm hoping that other movies like that start to come right. out. It would be great to have a movie about Grace Hopper, mm-hmm. who's one of the early, early programmers, early, 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 early programmers, and actually coined the term bug. Because um, there was an actual, an actual bug, bug in the system. <laughs> but it would be great to have a biopic about her and her life. She had a fascinating life. Those sort of stories need to come out. And the more they come out, the more you start to see people sort of shift. Uh, we have documented a shift since Hidden Figures. A definite shift in discussions. Well, I got to tell you, it was news to me. I was fascinated just by the promos. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I just had, I had no idea. It was absolutely news to me. I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, and I do hope, and I, and I think maybe we will see more and more of that. And then over here in the um, in the in the business sector, I think we got to keep having these conversations, and we have to continue to educate those who have influence, those who have purse strings, at the opportunities and the value, and opening our eyes a little bit at, yeah. at these di- at, at these different uh, sectors. Here's an interesting fact: Hidden Figures was the top-grossing Oscar-nominated picture of last year. Top. Well, I did not know that either. So a movie about Black women engineers and mathematicians (laughs) was the top-grossing Oscar-nominated movie. And if that doesn't send a signal to Hollywood and to marketers about the potential of this market, then I don't know what would. Well, I'll tell you, Christina and Sandy both will tell you, I've gone on record on the air um, I'm a big fan of women. I like women. I think they're smarter. I think they're more collaborative. I think they're better with money. I think they're more comfortable in their skin. I would rather work with a woman. And so that is that is genuine and true, and I really believe that. So I, uh, more than some, have really kind of sort of gotten there with women. 
Yeah. Everything else being equal, I'm going to invest in a woman. I'm going to hire a woman. I, the, I probably shouldn't say that, right? That's, there's probably something illegal about that. <laughs> That's but right. it's the truth. Uh, and candidly, I, ha I haven't made that jump um, to where I've really even paid attention to Latino, African-American. or uh, And so this is, this is eye-opening for me. Now, I'm not going to let this epidemiologist thing slide. I got to know your backstory. I want to hear about this career path. That, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. How does one land where you landed? Walk us through that. Oh, my goodness. So I actually grew up in the Midwest. Um, I grew up partially in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My father was a brewery worker. He worked at Schlitz Brewery. So a lot of people know Schlitz because it's know like Schlitz. a hipster, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so we worked in a brewery and I grew up in a very blue collar community at the beginning of my life. It was a great community. Everyone had a house. Everyone had cars. We did Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Little League. Um, and then in the 1980s, the factory shut down um, and devastated our community, uh. devastated Milwaukee. 30 plus years later, still hasn't really recovered. And what happened in Milwaukee was no different than what had happened in Cleveland and Detroit and other Pittsburgh, other parts of sort of this, you know, industrial heartland of America. And it devastated our community. And my father, though, was probably the smartest person I'd ever met in my entire life. And I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people. And I have not met anyone who was as smart as him, just inherently smart. I mean, saw a vision for himself greater than what was told that he could be as a young Black man growing up in the 50s and 60s. And so he found himself at this workforce development course um, that someone taught. This guy from IBM said, I'm going to go to the hood and teach a group of displaced factory workers C++. I would love to, like, find that gentleman if he's still alive because I'm like, what made you to say, hey, yeah. I'm going to go do this on a Saturday? <laughs> um, my father found himself at this course and fell in love. And we often say that, you know, my father's mistress was C++ and his Vax computer. Um, <laughs> and so he took an internship at 36 at IBM, unpaid wow. internship at 36, wow. while unpacking boxes at night. Got an entry-level job in, at digital equipment. Um, moved my family to Minneapolis, where we knew no one. Minneapolis and Milwaukee may seem like the same place, but they're completely different places. Um, and then worked his way up to Microsoft and then EMC. And so I was a child growing up and seeing this. Um, and that work ethic just really stuck with me. Um, I always say there may be people who are prettier, smarter, what have you than me, but you will never, ever outwork me, ever. And so I grew up with that. And of course... The logical thing would have been for me to go right into computers, but of course I did not do that. No, that would have been way that? too logical. <laughs> um, and so I, I went to school. At first I was going to go into politics, and then I interned um, in the Senate and at the White House and decided not to go into politics <laughs> after that. All right, but, but quick sidebar, that is one of the values of an internship, right? It was. Right? It's like I couldn't. I'm too I'm too honest and I'm too direct, and I just I can't. I can't. Um <clears throat> And then was traveling abroad, uh, went away for a year abroad. I had technically graduated from college earlier, early, and did not want to go back to Minnesota. I was living um, in New Jersey at the time, and was like, I just don't want to go back to Minneapolis, um, especially after being out near New York. And so I took a, I had a fellowship um, from the Department of Defense to go to Ghana. And while in Ghana, I became ill. I got malaria. Uh -huh. um, and it just had such a profound, the whole experience of just being sick and that far away. 
being sick and not having the resources that we take for granted here in the United States mm-hmm. um, had a real big impact on me. And so I went to Yale for graduate school in epidemiologists and did a lot of work on HIV AIDS throughout the world um, in India and in South Africa. I lived in Africa, um, South Africa, West Africa, um, and was doing all this work and it was great and it was fun. And then I came and I happened to just fall in love. And it was anyone who's been married or is married. No, you, you can't stay married if you're traveling three weeks out of the month. <laughs> mm. And I wasn't going to nearby places. I wasn't like going to Chicago. <laughs> I was going to like the Sinai Peninsula. Like, you know, yeah. I was going to places that I had to take like four planes to get to. And this was pre-Skype. This was pre, you know, all the technologies we have now. So um, I went back and stayed in Philly, got married um, and was working and leading a women's health organization but I was I was kind of bored. I didn't have, we were newlyweds in Philadelphia, didn't really have any friends or family there. And my husband said, you know, you're doing a lot of shopping. I was always the most fabulous person in the lab. Um, and he was like, you know, why don't you start this thing called a blog? And this was in 2003. I was like, okay, that, that sounds cute. Like, what is that? That sounds like fun. Let's do it. Um, so I started this blog called The Budget Fashionista, and it was so long ago that we had to hard code everything. So I had uh, to create a MySQL database, had to learn PHP, had to learn HTML just for a picture to show up. <laughs> We're not talking about anything extra cool just for a picture of a purchase that I made at Nordstrom's Rack to show up. Um, and so... We did that, and within six months, it was picked up by the Associated Press, who was doing an article on people who travel to go shopping. And they found me through this new sort of search engine called Google. (laughs) And (laughs) now this was like 2004. And what most people, I think, don't remember, because it seems like so long ago, was blogs did not really take off until the 2004 presidential election. That's when people started to really notice blogs. Um, and it was a whole bunch of things with Swift boats and stuff like that that people started to pay attention to. So I started around that time and just happened to find myself in the right place in the right time. And I think anytime you're starting a business, um, yet skills important and mm. finance is important and all that, but also luck is really important and timing is <laughs> more important. (laughs) And that's what happened to me is that I had this great time, this timing. And that led to a book, which led to lots of television. Um, And so towards the end, about maybe six so years into it, I started to think of what was next because I saw things were starting to change. Um, When I started blogging, it was much more service oriented. It was much more about how how do you do something rather than how do I do something or it wasn't so much about pictures of myself, which it is now. It's very personality driven. Um, and I didn't want that. I, you know, I, I dress for myself. I don't really dress for other people. So um, the idea of taking pictures of myself every day was like something I really did not want to do. <laughs> Not trying to hate on anyone who does it, but I was like, I just really would not want to have to worry about that. Um, and so, so I had opportunities to sell it, um, a number of opportunities throughout the years. And an opportunity came up and it just happened to be, again, timing. And I sold it. And 
<clears throat> after that, it was like, I'm somebody who always has to have something to do. It was like, okay, so, you know, a month or two, went on a great vacation, a bucket list vacation in New Zealand, <laughs> did all these things. And I was like, okay, so what's next? And happened to be contacted by BlogHer, which is this organization that represents millions of women, social media influencers. Um, one of the most successful women-led startups um, in Silicon Valley. And they were looking for someone to come on and be an editor-at-large and particularly help them build out their lifestyle channel. And that was my experience. So I came on and worked with them. And then they were sold, which was great, um, to She Knows, which is an even larger women-led platform. So within the space of like four years, two of the companies, one that I owned and one that I worked for, sold. And so I had a firsthand look at how do you sell something in tech, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't talk about selling my blog for almost two years. Right. And and there was a reason, right? They were afraid that if I said Oh, this it, was it, a legal constraint. Legal. It was okay. a legal constraint. I think okay. that's what a lot of people don't realize when you sell a company <laughs> right. and you finally hear it. That company probably was so like six months, a year or two before. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to make sure that the market didn't react a certain way right, if right. they found yeah, that someone sense. was uninvolved. Um, and then Blogger sold, which was a much more public. Um, they had quite a bit of venture funding. So it was a much bigger sell than, than what I got. But being able to see that and how do you sell a venture-backed company and how do you sell a company that's not ventured-backed and why do people buy companies, particularly in the tech space? Um, that's something that I learned as well and I think was really important lessons that I try to impart and I don't try to push them on people through our incubator, <laughs> but I try to impart to them of like, here's why people buy. Here's what they're looking for. Um, realize that selling something is going to take many, 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 many months, unless it's something that they need immediately. Then, you know, there's always exceptions to the rules, but you don't just have someone say, I want to buy your company. And then it's like bought tomorrow. Like it's just, is a whole path. Um, I, I show people cause I can't give a, give them a copy of like the sort of the bill of sale, which was like, 25 pages, 10-point wow. font, single space. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the legal ease was like, oh my gosh. It was this, it, but you know, you don't think about those things when you think of someone selling a company. And if you could imagine if you're a venture-backed company, right. how many documents, how many like rounds, mm-hmm. how many lawyers and investment bankers are involved. Um, it's infinitely harder process. Um but those are sort of the things that I learned. And it's been a really interesting life, I want to say. Um, yeah, and it's exciting. And my husband works in tech too. So we're like a very tech family. <laughs> I have a, a small child. We're like preparing him as well. <laughs> we're like, we're going to teach him the code so that he can like work as well. But um, it's been a really exciting, interesting life. Well, it certainly sounds like it. A, an observation and a couple of questions uh, remaining f- for me as we wrap. One on this whole be at the right place at the right time luck. I agree. That's consistent with my personal experience, and I've heard other people say that. And it seems like people like you who are consistently investing time, energy, in doing something to serve others, people like you who are consistently pumping the handle, I call it, seem to find themselves in that situation mm-hmm. a lot more than other people. Is it, would you agree with that? I, I actually would agree. Yeah. Um, it, it's something about, 
I think when you are, again, I think it goes back to knowing who you are and, and what it is your purpose is. And I think we're all trying to continuously find our purpose. But I think when you know who you are and you know what you're good at, you can find yourself in these spaces that are able to capitalize on those talents. Yeah. And, and that's what's happened with me. Well, and you strike me as what I would characterize as a, as a life learner. I, I get mm. the sense that you yeah. learn from just about any, you'll learn something from us hanging out today. You'll yeah. learn something <laughs> from the drive back. You're, you're just, you're that kind of, kind of person. And I suspect you've probably been the benefactor of formal and informal um, counsel from mm-hmm. a variety of mentors. Is there a piece of advice or two, a piece of counsel that, has really stuck with you over the years, even to the extent that you uh, find yourself trying to pass it on when you can and it's appropriate? Yeah, you know, uh, there's one piece of advice. So this weekend coming up, I'm getting an honorary degree from Ah. um, Mount Holyoke College, Uh which is like beyond amazing for me. And so I was thinking of what was I going to impart to the students. (laughs) I'm like, I have to impart something. And it's something that um, my father said to me. And so there was a point when I was a teen that I was dressing really, really horribly. Um, Like really, really bad in an effort for people not to notice me. And he pulled me to the side and he said, look, Catherine, you're a big girl. People are going to notice you. There's nothing you can do about it. You can even hide even if you wanted to. So give them something to look at. And that was probably the best advice anyone has ever giving me. And I think for anyone, whether you're a woman or a person of color or what have you, you cannot hide who you really are. You can't. You are you. So give them something to look at. That is a fantastic piece of advice. I am so glad that I asked. It has been an absolute delight having you in the studio this morning. We got to have you back because I can envision an entire episode (laughs) talking about um, misbeliefs, misconceptions that maybe some of these uh, first-time entrepreneurs started. I mean, uh, we could probably build a whole series for the whole year, but I hope you'll come back. This has been so much fun. Christina, I mean, you guys just must be swelled with pride to be hanging out with Catherine, to have her as your keynote. I'm excited to hang out with them. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's mutual, right? Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. So uh, before we wrap, a couple of things. I want to make sure that our listeners uh, know how to get in touch with you or someone on your team to to learn more about Digital Undivided, to have a conversation with somebody. So uh, coordinates for you guys, whatever is appropriate, email, uh, LinkedIn, whatever digitalundivided.com also on Twitter. So if you look us up at Digital Divided or Catherine Finney is my Twitter handle. I'm very active on Twitter. We love social media. All right. And uh, Christina, let's make sure that our listeners, uh, once again, the, the, the event, the, the dates, is, is there still time uh, to get involved at, at a sponsor level for this. Definitely. Thing. Absolutely. We okay. uh, still have sponsorships available. And of course, ticket sales are ongoing. So you guys can look us up on all of social media at mywit.org is our website. And our Twitter handle is, um, what is our Twitter handle? Goodness. Uh, W-I-T-A-T-L. And you can email us at info at mywit.org. So again, the event's going to be over at the Coca-Cola Roxy um, on June 15th. What a marvelous way to invest a Thursday morning. This has been a blast. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you for you for having us.
All right, until next time, this is Stone Payton for our guest this morning, Catherine Finney with Digital Undivided and Christina Beyer with Women in Technology and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying we'll see you next time on Atlanta Business Radio. 